Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. This week's guest is flautist, composer, performer, artist, gardener, herbalist, and polymath Tessa Brinkman. Tessa grew up in New Zealand and came to the U.S. by way of New York City in the late 80s. She has performed with major symphonies and elite chamber music ensembles. Her experience and interests are vast, and she has so much passion and excitement for her art. It's really cool. Tessa and I sat down at the beginning of January to discuss what 2020 might look like for both of us. Boy, how wrong were we? (laughs) Tessa had plans of traveling to New Zealand, France, and Florida for concerts, installations, and recordings. Of course, all of that changed. Now, all of her creating will be done remotely. She did just release her EP, Below, which can be found on Bandcamp, and I really encourage you to check that out. It's really amazing. Please enjoy my conversation with Tessa Brinkman. All right, jolly good. Well, welcome to my lair. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> <My house>. Tessa. <laughs> Thanks for being part of this. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, actually, it's funny when you ask me, um, of course, I've had a whole like month to conjure up questions and ideas and stuff. I've had lots of internal dialogues. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, right. because it is cool to be able to um, dive deep into all kinds of issues and now is a pretty um what plangent time since the planet is literally on fire right. to be talking about um what we care about <clears throat> yeah and how we make make things better so yeah right. I'm, I'm up for it awesome awesome you know when i when i think of you as an artist as a person as a friend i think about one of the words that comes to me is range like you have this big range of of things that you do in your life and also just musically and artistically. So like you play <laughs> from the piccolo to the the contrabass flute and and you do visual arts and you do animation and you you live on this amazing property and you you grow food and you do with herbs and like it's just you have this 
incredible it's rage. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be truthful here. It's tiring to be me. No, <laughs> it's inspiring. I mean, truly, for me, it's like I I look at Tessa and I'm like, oh my god, like, is there anything? <laughs> I can't do, there's so many things I can't do, believe me. Yeah, no, I know, yeah. <laughs> but it's impressive what you, what your output is, uh, is very impressive. And, um, just in the 10 or so years that I've known you, mm-hmm. like it's just seeing all the various projects that you've been a part of, whether through the film festival or with Terry and Kabi. Cabellito, Cabellito Negro. Negro. Yeah. I knew I was going to Little dark horse. Mispronounce. You can say it like that, yeah. <laughs> to uh, solo works or, or your, you know, um, just your house even, you know. It's it, the, all this expression of your your creativity. And so I think about range when I, when I, when I think of you. That's what I think is like this just huge range of... Well, of talents and interests. And well, it's, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> It is. I mean, you know, I'm interested in probably almost everything. Right. Um, and that is definitely a curse because there's only so many hours in the day <laughs> and we're mortal and we live in bodies yeah. that need attention. Um, but lots and lots and lots of different things interest me. And what is really cool is when you can synthesize ideas from different disciplines, um, that's really exciting to me. Mm. Um, so I'm always listening to conversations and, you know, podcasts and looking at articles and um, trying to stay current with what the zeitgeist is, what people really care about, what is missing. Yeah. Um, and that definitely affects me, obviously, in my creativity and things. Um, and also, you know, I have a very, very visceral reaction to the world. Mm. Um, it's very physical. So yeah. I, I always follow my instincts about what I like and what I don't. Um, and what's bullshit and what isn't. And that's really important too because there's so much coming at us. And if you're sensitive, you can be just sort of overwhelmed or paralyzed. Yeah, but if sure. you have a, an ethic or a, you know, a kind of a philosophical through line that you're following, mm. it, you can navigate a lot of things. Right. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I've lived in so many different, I would call, <laughs> eras, lives, right, in different places with right. different people. Yeah. Uh, different dynamics of families and, you know, relationships and professional stuff. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit hard to describe myself back to myself in many ways. And also I think sometimes I envy those people who can be in one place, mm. have lived in one place all their life, and they have, you know, a, a family that looks sort of, you know, like two parents and, Right, you know, two point five kids, two point five children, and everything is sort of normal. Yeah, and, whatever that means. And right, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I look at that yeah. and I sort of envy that. Or people who have even have nine to five jobs. Yeah, right, because they can switch off. They can just curse their job. <laughs> Thank God they're being paid, and then they go home, and yeah. then right. Whereas my brain is on all the time, mm. um, and I was forced to be. Uh, bicultural from a very early age and I was forced to be living with in many different situations and many different people Mm. from a very early age. Um, So I had to be enormously adaptive. And so I think probably from that age, I started to really learn how to have a a core self. Um, Mm. Like when I came back, so, you know, I was in South Africa seeing my 
father and a whole bunch of drama happened and so my mother took me when back. When was this? This was when I was eight years old. Okay. And South, South Africa being what it was, of course, it was the apartheid years, yeah, the yeah. early 70s. I came home. And one of the first things I did, I was looking on the bookshelf because I love to read, um, and I saw this book called The Population Bomb. Um, which is a famous like book that came out that was saying the world's too populated and here's what we do about it. It's an adult, an adult book, right? <laughs> and I read it, mm. eight years old. I kind of struggled through the very dense section. It's actually quite dense for mm-hmm. adults to read too. But I had realized by the time I was eight that there were things that were there were there were systemic things that were controlling the way my parents were. There were things that were. It was like we were all caught in, a, in, in sort of microwebs and macrowebs, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to understand the incredible uh, pathological cruelty that we lived in. Right. You know, because South Africa at that time was such a <laughs> great example of that. Right. It, it was so uh, hierarchical and so you know uh, like a giant prison for everybody, mm. including the white people who controlled it all right right different you, kind of prison for different them. kind of prison you i mean you become you're whether you're a prison guard or a prisoner right. you're still part of a system that's yeah. toxic um and so i started made it made it a lot of, um i made a lot of i think semi-conscious decisions to try to decide how the world really looked um and it was less about what people told me and more about what i could figure out Sure. Um, by awesome. asking people, um, and you know, I had there were different people who showed up to be extraordinary allies and guides, um, mm-hmm. who provide a lot of security where there wasn't any otherwise. Um, and music, I think, has a function too that it can be like this big house you can live in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know this. You work on a piece, <laughs> and it literally. Through this architecture, you be- you begin to understand lots and lots of things. Yep. Um, and you are responsible for sustaining it, creating it, recreating it, arguing with it. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, right. It develops and, its own life yeah. and entity and all that. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's such a mystery, music. Really, I mean, it, it occupies every part of one's brain when you're performing it. just we it's 2020 (laughs) yes thanks for reminding me (laughs) and um it dawned on me that you know we're i i I don't know why but i always i I tend to think more in my own my own decades of Mm -hmm. life like you know when my 20s my 30s my 40s my 50s but then there's this other deck the other decades you know Mm -hmm. like 2010 to 2020 so i was curious like if you if you had to describe your artistic life or, or if there was like a, a way to describe the last 10 years, mm. 
and what and how you see the next 10 years um, for you artistically or musically, what, how would you, what does that look like for you? What has the last 10 years been like and what do you see the next 10 years? That's a really interesting question. Um, hmm. It, it's kind of like the last 10 years for me have been like an artistic uh, adolescence where I've been leaving home leaving the comfort of, uh, say, being employed by other people or having demands from other people telling mm-hmm. me what I should be doing um, or expectations and developing my own uh, ideas and dealing with the discomfort of that. Um, and I only feel like really recently have I regained, really gained some confidence in that because I um, did a mm-hmm. residency at the Atlantic Center for the Arts in October. Right. And decided that I was going to, for the first time ever, um, make an animation. Right. Um, and compose music to go with it. And it was obviously in three weeks. There's only so much <laughs> you can do. So I literally did some test pieces. Mm-hmm. And it was like returning to, you know, pieces of my soul returning to myself that I hadn't had for a long time. Have you always been interested in animation or where did that, where did that piece come in for you? So I always loved making art and for me, I'm a very tactile person. So for me, playing music, playing flute is tactile. It's Mm. this vibration through the hands, Mm. the head, it's all of the, all of the things that happen physically. Um, And so making art is the act of you know, cutting with scissors or pasting and drawing, you know, I just love that. And, um, of course, you know, when I did this animation, it was digital, all digital. Um, um, but I... Well, it was just, cutout animation, wasn't it? Yeah, but digital cutout. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can do virtual scissors, yeah. Uh, I used three pieces of software. Okay. Um, because I wanted to do it my way. I didn't want to become sophisticated and actually learn a proper program because that would have taken years off my life. Sure, yeah. Right? I mean, I've seen, you know, other an, true animators do right. it. And I just, ugh, it just makes, gives me nightmares. Mm. Um, so what I use, I use three pieces of software in succession, mm. including a children's animation program, oh, which cool. I just love. It's kind of like GarageBand, but a bit kooky. Right. Um, and I wanted to use cutout animation because... Um, over the past couple of years, I've become deeply interested in this woman. She was one of the first people to write science fiction, not Mary Shelley, but actually Margaret Cavendish mm. on the mid-17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote this piece called Blazing World. And what it was was this, this fantasy about this noble woman who finds herself in like the North Pole and she goes underground and then she meets all these different people and, uh, you know, sort of animals, I guess, animal people, mm-hmm. and argues science and philosophy with them. Right, I mean, she's arguing with a polar bear about you know the <laughs> use of the microscope, and she was doing this because nobody gave a shit about her opinions on science. Right. And at that time, it was all these major, you know, technological developments like Hooke with the microscope and Descartes and everything, and science was taking off. And in particular, this idea that you could extract um, the parts from the whole and look at them. And that right. things could be separated. Mm. For her, instinctively, this was just horrible. Um, which I find quite a beautiful thing that she had this instinctive response. Mm. In fact, a number of people did because they were doing things like vivisection and all kinds of stuff. And there were women, yes, yeah. they were critiquing that. And there were a lot of critical thinkers um, actually in the mid-1600s. Uh, it was a particularly violent period in England. 
um, there was all this intellectual, you know, bubbling going on, right. and it informed what would happen a hundred years later. Like, for example, you know, all the revolutions and stuff. Yep. And women were definitely a part of that. You just don't hear about it. Right. It's not yeah. recorded so much. Luckily for her, she was married. She was wealthy, um, mm -hmm. well, at least part of the life. And, and her husband was an um, aristocrat. So he was very supportive of her. And she couldn't have children. So a lot of energy went towards writing poetry and dealing with philosophy, um, deeply interested in science. And she would have all these conversations with people. Mm. Um, and she, I think she was sort of known as an eccentric pest in many ways, <laughs> right? Uh, Samuel Pepys, the one who wrote the diary about, um, you know, the the fire of London and stuff, mm -hmm. he, he didn't think much of her, you know. Right. Thought she was a waste of time. And she was kind of... Funny, she was kind of an exhibitionist too, actually. Hmm. So, <laughs> which I, I sort of, I love that about her, actually. So she, she would devise these amazing costumes. Like one time she went to the opera with, you know, just her breast showing and, so, and such. <laughs> All these giant hats and things. I, I just love that about her. You know, this woman who was in the, in the midst yeah. of all this violent, you know, turmoil and all these repressive people around her. And she just wanted something different. Hmm. So I thought... I thought of cut out animation because I always loved Terry Gilliam's uh, right. work. And I know yeah. he's not the flavor of the month right now, but sure. but his work always I thought was wonderful because it was so dark and funny. Right. You know, it has and cut out animation gives you that quality. Yeah, it does. It's that comical. Yeah. A little bit. Of I mean, that. It, it, and truth telling if you do yeah. it right, yeah. right. And I thought the humor of this woman, Margaret Cavendish. There's something very funny about her and tragic and brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it would be a perfect medium for her. Right. And so, you know, I literally in three weeks, I not only worked on this collective uh, um, installation with artists there. So that was a whole bunch of other work. Making, right. Making work. I also did this animation pe animation test pieces. Um, and I also uh, recorded music for it. Right. Um, with Baroque flute, prepared piano, and uh, data sonification of star systems and stuff. Yeah, so, that was cool. I listened to it, or listened to a little put, little bit you put on the yeah, thanks. your website. It was great. Yeah, no, I I loved it, and I really feel strongly about bringing these pe kinds of people to light because there's more to them. Than just, you know, oh, that's so quaint or, right. gosh, how funny. You know, that actually she was quite prescient. I mean, the things that people are talking about now in terms of climate change, you know, for example, you know, not, well, indigenous people have been saying it for millennia, <laughs> right? Don't, don't extract the parts from the whole. Remember the whole spirit of something. Remember that all things have a spirit. She was very much about that. Mm. So there's this wonderful connection between who she is, who she was, and where we are now, where we're being required to look at our political, spiritual values, right. you know, and the monetary systems we use and just everything that <laughs> is up for examination, I mean, yeah. literally everything. said in your post i think you said something about self-doubt like and that you were you were confronting that and that maybe that kind of 
vanished or went away while you were in Florida at this retreat or how talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, I had, I think when you're trying to grow up, self doubt is pretty, looms pretty large. Yes. And I, I'm an ensemble person. So I like my identity is as much caught up with other people as it is within myself, which I think is a good thing because mm-hmm. I think being part of the hive is a beautiful thing. It, it, it keeps you real. It keeps the questions and a certain amount of doubt is really fantastic. You need to be able to look at your own work critically right. or other work, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it was crippling me because, um, you know, this area that we live in, as beautiful it is, it doesn't have that critical mass of feedback. Right, artistic yeah, yeah. feedback. It just doesn't. So um, small, all kinds yeah. of reasons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the West Coast too, in its own nature, it tends to be more passive um, or at its worst, passive aggressive. Right. Right. Which is, <laughs> you know, and I'm not the only one saying this. There's a lot of people. Who no, it's, I, yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the things I miss about the East Coast, for example, are the sort of immediacy of feedback, whether you want it or not. But at least having feedback tells you that you exist. Right. And Which it's real and authentic. Right. Yeah. And we need other people to tell us what time it is. We absolutely need that. You know, this is part of the, the thing of like, if you're going to have a self, you need the outside to have pressure. It's like having, you know, literally the air or fluid, or the water around you. Right. You know, we don't exist just in space. <laughs> right? We can't. We can't. And we shouldn't. Right. Um, so that was my mission. And... Um, the master curator who we were working with, a bunch of us were working with, um, Sopjin Joe, who's fantastic, um, just had this really great presence of, you know, really big heart, very critical eye, very funny, very kind, just and very fast as well, which is great. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like I was being observed by someone who really cared, but also who really wanted to get my work. And she did totally. Oh, awesome. And she kept pushing me, you know, in fact, it was so funny. She said to me, um, so it was about around Halloween and someone said to me, "Oh, just do this silly little drawing for me. So I, I like scribbled something for 10 seconds and gave it back to her. And then Sukjin Joe saw this and she said, who did this? And I said, oh, I did it. It's just some rubbish I drew. And she said, no, I really like this. This is actually really good. And you, you can draw. You should draw every day. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Um, wow. She said, because you can't teach this. You should. You have something there that's wow. really potent and you should keep drawing. And she was encouraging all of us actually to draw every day mm. and to journal about not as a, as a sort of a like, oh, just for our own sake thing, right. but, but more, you know, journaling, right? right? <laughs> it's more like <clears throat> keeping a record of your thinking because yep. it helps so helpful when you're creating a project, especially when you start to lose the thread mm-hmm. or you're, you lose heart or you're bored or whatever. It reminds you, oh, my God. And then you look at, you look at it and go, wow, that's actually quite brilliant. Or, <laughs> well, no, that's actually a terrible idea. Right, what was I thinking? Right. Um, so uh, I, I really took heart from that to that's keep awesome. drawing. So that's why I've revised my room. Um, which is no longer just a music studio. It's also no, art it's as well. For drawing and with art, visuals. St- yeah, and putting stuff on the walls and having a table to work at. Um, I think the beauty also of doing an artist residency is that you you are taken seriously and you can take yourself seriously. Um, someone has said, 
yes, you can do this, and we believe in you, and we think your work's amazing, so <laughs> you better come here and get some stuff done. Get it, yeah. And do some shit. Yeah, and I mean, this is the whole thing, too, about being you know, a creative person. You know, if it's your job to do this, is that it's a very lonely process. Um, yeah. And it can be isolating. Right. And particularly, you live out west, super <laughs> isolating because that's the way the west is. Right. It's about the individual. The frontier right. and all that, yeah. And it's not about the collective here. And so when people form collectives, it's kind of a big deal, you know. Right. Um, and I've tried in the last 10 years I've been here, actually in Portland, I've tried too to form collectives. And, mm. you know, it's just not really, it's not be in the, in the air. Yeah, it's not in whereas, the ether really. Right. Was where I'm in Paris, right, it's totally in the air because, the, the, you know, the Parisians, the French understand the collective. They've had their revolutions. They're having their <laughs> strike right now. Right. They understand collective need. Um, it's built into their economy. So um, I can feel it, you know, and you can, I mean, you can talk about individual idiosyncrasies of, you know, everybody everywhere on the planet gets lonely or right. whatever, but there, there are definitely cultural costumes that permit a certain kind of closeness or a certain kind of distance. Right. What was, um, how was it in Berlin? What I liked about it was the free and easy humor of being a very contemporary city. It's like, so confident in its own thinking mm. that the experiments just happen, you know, happen, and they're public, publicly supported, right? And they're supported right. by funding, so people take their sort of futurist experimental ideas seriously, but not seriously with <laughs> weight. You know, they right. they there's a lot of humor and self reflection. So I really admired what mm. I saw in Berlin. I went to the something called the Museum of Things. It was just fabulous. So it was so funny. It's like, you know, you read about these things like in, in the 20th century, um, the early part of the 20th century, there was all this mass production happening and, and a bunch of uh, people disapproved of the aesthetics. And so they formed some sort of cultural committee to try and shape actually what was being produced. You know, they were literally trying to right. prevent terrible things being made. You know, badly made—not not just badly made, but boringly, boringly made things. Made, yeah. And so, in this museum, was just this cabinet after cabinet of extraordinary, often very beautiful things, very strange things, ridiculous things. But <laughs> the kinds of things that, um, well, I I had this particular passion for objects that are used every day that are beautiful to look at, because this again right. is another aspect of living. With beauty, life as right? art, kind of right. Yeah. Life as art, and 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 I also have very strong feelings about that. Everybody is entitled to this. Entitled. I'm going to use that word. So it's a human right that every single person is entitled to beauty, and it shouldn't be a luxury right. in a province of people who've got money. It's it's everybody is entitled to this, and art and beauty is our birthright and our responsibility. <laughs> entitled to beauty and art mm -hmm. and so how do, how do you think about that when you're programming for example or do you think about that when you're 
putting together a concert or you're putting together a program like what what role what role do you think about the audience being in that or is it more like I'm the artist this is what I'm feeling compelled to give and you know, I and mean, stuff you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's the my. I think Take about, I think audience. about like the Miles Davis approach, which is like, fuck you. I'm doing. I'm an artist. I'm doing this, and and I know you're not that way. Yeah. But that's kind of the extreme. And the other is, you know, symphony orchestras that only play Beethoven, mm-hmm. Brahms, and right, and that are afraid they're going to fall apart or, fiscally know. and must play yeah. the great. Yeah, right. So when you're, Brands I'm just stuff. curious. You know when you're put, when you're doing programming for your own concerts, like mm-hmm. what what considerations do you think about with the the audience, or 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 do you? <laughs> oh, absolutely! No, it's a dialogue with the audience, and the audience absolutely matters. But it's not a pandering thing because right. it's just totally uninteresting to me. <laughs> um, and I'm not interested in reinforcing people's boringness mm-hmm. and what they know. So it's more like having a guest in your home. You know, you're not going to feed the most challenging food to them and then they'll <laughs> writhe on the floor. Right. You know, it's it's like if you have a challenging dish, you're going to present things, first of all, that will warm them up into, you know, the hors d'oeuvres, sure. right, or something. Uh, warm, warm them up into this new way of, of tasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, so it's love and respect, but it's also a fierce vision simultaneously. Right. You can't be rude to people. But you also can't let them be, you know, dumbasses either, right? <laughs> um, and sort of, you know, because actually people aren't. I mean, people often I've had huge responses from people whose taste would be considered to be conservative to the most avant-garde piece that I played. Um, they found it the most interesting mm. um, because they, they were hungry for it and they didn't know it. So in a right. way, you could say you're kind of like a chef, right? You're sort of that, you know, a great meal. You didn't realize you were hungry, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that you were hungry for something. Um, and then you taste this dish you never tasted before. It's like, oh, my God, I never <laughs> knew about this taste. Right, I how, never knew that what, flavor existed. How or... could I have missed this? <laughs> Where did this come from? How come I've never tasted this before? Right. Why are we all doing this? Why, you know, and I think about pieces that, um, wake up all the senses in that way. Um, I mean, it's hard to you know get it all right and sure. all of that. And the <laughs> venues that we play in are just are so br- you know bloody challenging as well, right? Because for sure, I mean everything's challenging about putting on concerts because you know money is a joke, and then you bring in audiences and you've got to scramble to do that, and it's okay. I'll do all the PR for this, and then. You know, and the the physical environment itself, the acoustics, because all of these things, the audience needs to have magic. We're really magicians. Right. Right? So the walls of where we play matter. Because especially for flute playing, which is unlike an instrument like the piano or the cello, right, it doesn't have this huge resonating board. So it's smoke and mirrors to try and get the resonance. So you need a venue that blooms the instrument but doesn't overwash it. Right. You know? um, yeah. But yeah, the the art of like programming or curation, whatever you call it, is yeah. fascinating to me. Because um, yeah, I think it's kind of like a magic show, and that's kind of why I've been interested more and more in things like um, video and, and and narrative and right. you know, I I think what informs me honestly is you know 
like when I was, I remember being six years old and, um, <laughs> and our teacher said, okay, today we're going to do um, dioramas. Right? I thought, what's a diorama? <laughs> sort of challenging and so we all had shoe boxes mm -hmm. and then we put things inside them but for me it was like the final moment where you put the cellophane over and you have this glow of light and I had all this colored you know uh, colored light coming in sure I thought oh my god this is magical <laughs> I've created a world here a tiny world mm. and this idea of creating a world just totally sent me and I was kind of the way I used to play as a kid too like I would create worlds I guess yeah. maybe all kids do this I suppose they all do yeah. right so I would do you know create these fantasy worlds that yep. were sort of vast that's awesome that's play right um and I've never forgotten that because that's what we do and do music mm. but so many banal things can get in the way when you're trying to make a concert happen right and it's trying I've spent my entire life trying to bat away banality you know, uh, whether it's from people or circumstances, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And and so that I want people to feel that they're in a magical space where they start to feel something so deep, you know, that it, they're going to carry it. Right. And it's, it's going to, it's them. like a gift that they can carry and then it, it, it'll be something they can carry with them and it will inform their next thing. Sure. You know, that's uh, that's our job really. Right being magicians I think. yeah i love that you tied it back to being a child because i feel that that's something really on the present for me is this childlike exploration and play with our creative selves with our art um did you i'm, I'm sorry i don't know this but do you have siblings yeah i do have siblings so how many how were they? Were well, you close with them? Did you guys play together? I did, did, were you all well, musicians? I, I just or? had my brother growing up, okay. um, and so I would, you know, I was of course the older sister, so I would construct <laughs> construct these worlds. Like today, we're going to play hospital, and you're going to be the you're going to be the doctor. I'm going to be the nurse. It was all very gendered, but I, obviously, being the older, I was the I you was were the like, director. I was the director. Yes, uh, yes, uh, um, nurse Ratchet. You know, right. <laughs> And uh, yes, yeah, so I put, would conjure up all these worlds. But yeah, I had a circus world, and then mm. I had a, a World War Two world, you know. And did he play music also? Was he a musician? Uh, he's not a musician, but he did did learn some things at some point. Yeah, mm. but he didn't really follow. It wasn't really his right. thing. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, whether he liked it or not, poor, poor guy, <laughs> yeah. he had to be dragged into it. Um, but. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I remember the day that I told him that I wasn't going to do this anymore, and he was so disappointed. And I, I you weren't going to play those. I wasn't going to play those games anymore because I was grown up now. Right, right. <laughs> and it was like it, it was like I had killed something, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, but then I think when I went to university and I did this year, one of the things I did was a year long intensive in theatre. And it all came this back. This was in Wellington? This was in Wellington, yeah. And it all came back. Um, I studied with um, this phenomenal professor, actually two professors, but um, he he's kind of like the Peter Brooks of New Zealand. He's had that kind of vision. Mm -hmm. So we studied ancient Greek theatre and modern theatre and stuff. And I wrote music for the first time um, for plays and, you know, acted and made, you know, costumes. And, and I just, the whole thing of just looking at the 
world that theaters create, I thought was just so fantastic. Wow. You know, and I still do. Right. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> the, my only beef with theater now is that music and theater have really not had enough of a, a big conversation about how they can work together because um, I don't want to be doing music where I'm just sort of like, you know, a bed or yeah. a background. Or... Right, just, exactly. Or just, you know, I mean, it's certainly a valid form. Sure. I mean, it works. It's great. <laughs> um, but having done chamber music and orchestral music and solo music for years, that's not satisfying. It's like right. inviting an actor into a concert and saying, okay, you can say five words now. Go. Okay, stop. <laughs> Just shut up. Okay, wait till your turn. Okay, 10 minutes, you'll be on again. Say 10 more words. No, no shut up now. Okay, now you're done. Right. You right. know, um, yeah. that's enough from you. So <laughs> I, I'm really interested in a more integrated um, yeah. art form. And I, that's actually one of the reasons I went to New York years ago. Um, and I did some work with some off-off-Broadway theatre you know, I wrote some music and stuff. Mm. Um, but I was sort of astonished to realize how conservative um, New York theater was, that everybody was had the very stuck ideas, particularly directors. They didn't really understand <laughs> what music could do, what right. they want to, because the theater, the play was the primal right. thing. Right, it's know, there to serve thing. the play. Right. And, that's yeah. um, and that's why I thought, oh, okay, stuff this. I'm going to just focus on music. Right. Um, but I've always... I've seen some um, compositions, especially in the last 10 years, that I think are fantastic, uh, getting closer to the whole thing of language. Um, mm. There's a Kate Soper piece for um, flute and soprano that approximates that. I can't remember the name of the piece, but... Right. How was it with White Snake? Was that more of a... That's more traditional. That was that's more literally traditional. I mean, beautiful yeah. music, but that's a more traditional yeah. role. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was just curious. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, OSF hasn't explored that. They just yeah. haven't, and they're not going to probably. So that's okay. Right. Um, I didn't realize the, th the long thread of theater Yeah. through your, yeah. <laughs> through your life. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. It is. Um, it's important to me. It's just I think theater does so many things, and I respect so much the training that actors get and the way that they engage with each other. I mean, some things are really cuckoo, but, you know, <laughs> but I think there's so many things that are really great. And then, you know, the musical training I've had is another side, too. I love the, right. love the way that musicians work together. Um, and chamber music is my favorite right. form for that reason, because you get to do everything. You're a soloist and an ensemble player. Yeah. Um, you talked about, what was the word you used? You talked about collaboration... Gracefulness and collaboration. Mm. That that was yes. something that you said that I really struck me and um it can be challenging, I found, in chamber music, mm -hmm. um, with personalities and you know, there can be drama, but um I love that 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 gracefulness and collaboration where you're considering the other person. And I loved what there was an interview that where you and Terry were talking about um, your collaboration and how if one person really wasn't into it, then right. it wasn't, wasn't really worth right. worth pursuing. It had right. to be something that you both really felt deeply right. interested in. Yeah, it's, and that, that probably eliminates a lot of that right. angst. It's a marriage, basically, <laughs> right? Whether it's a group, large group marriage <clears throat> with all the different needs or it's, yeah, it's it's... It has to, I mean, I'm really picky about the people I work with. Right. Um, 
they have to, you need to have a deep ethic, I think, for it to be not something that will kill yourself, <laughs> kill the music. Um, I mean, I know there's a lot of groups out there who work under enormous personal strain and still that the music happens, but man, I would not like want to be working in that situation. Right. It just sounds like a heart attack. Yeah. No, there not. are many, there's so many of them, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, there's very, very funny stories as a result of those <laughs> things. Terrible stories, but funny stories. <clears throat> right. Excuse me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it takes, I think music, if you do it right, it's a, it can teach you so many things about how to, especially chamber music actually, how to retain that inner authority at the same time, be graceful and really listen and really understand what's really going on. I think it's truth seeking, right? Mm. So, you know, if intonation's off, rather than sort of play pretend humble, like, oh, it just must be me. Or, well, I've seen people do this, that, you know, like, oh, oh you, right. Right. Or you're so right. Or, you know, <clears throat> make, instead of just saying, I wonder what's really going on. Right. What's going on here? It doesn't right. sound right. And let's look yeah. at this, which is, it's much more exciting. I mean, you could translate also, that also to personal relationships, right? Rather than just sort of kind of faux apologizing, actually saying, well, what's really going on here? Is it you or is it me or is it something else? that's going on maybe it's not pitch maybe it's timbre right the right. color of the sound and that's why we think we're out of tune maybe it's a rhythmic thing that can even be an issue in pitch you know sure. there's all kinds of weird things that can happen and i think one of the essential qualities is curios- curiosity mm. um yeah about other people's uh feelings and, th- and thoughts um and at the end of the day you have to feel like it fits you right or that you can you can be yourself and the other person, let's say, well, other people can be themselves. And what happens when it's cooking is another entity arrives and it mm-hmm. has its own energy. So right. when a group is functioning really well, you've got this other person there, the right. person which is the group. <laughs> and it's got its own energy source yeah. and it's just going. And when it goes, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be um, hypermanaged. Right. It just, it, it's sort of got its own intelligence. Right. It gets rid of the egoic nature right. of it to, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Yeah, but I think being really real, um, being wholehearted about it, you know, and and not being conflict averse. I right. think being conflict averse is poison, frankly, <laughs> to music because music's about the frisson, you know, about about conflict. Right. It's I mean, it's what drama is, right? Yeah. And we actually crave this, um, and so it's not about being sort of peaceful and trying to be loving and trying to be this because you'll just end up straining yourself and you're actually creating uh, bad situations. It's about trying to find the truth of what's going on between the players, within the music, what's been demanded, what the overall aesthetic is that you're going right. for um, because, you know, why is it that you are doing this in the first place? Um, what purpose uh, is it fitting in with the culture? Is it a push against the culture? Um, mm. I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's I'm I like, you know, to think about music as resistance to to the culture. So there's a purpose to it, right? What is its mission? Um, what are we trying to wake up? Mm-hmm. Where we, where are we trying to comfort or poke people in the eye? <laughs> you know, either I mean, either way, all of those things are good, right? So how are we doing this in a way that that um, is really ethical? So ethics are a huge part of 
what I think about with this, whether it's basic issues like, you know, who's being paid and where's the money going to how people are treating each other to mm-hmm. the ethics of how you treat a piece of music, right? And, right. The, and the, com- the composer and the composition. Um, there's so many interesting issues with that. You know, I mean, this whole thing now about cultural appropriation is a really potent, interesting right. thing to deal with. Um, and so many yeah. people are speaking out, which is great. I, I'm really interested and seeing where all of that goes. So you went to New York City in the late 80s. Uh, from, yeah, just 89 onwards, yeah. Mm-hmm. From Wellington. Mm-hmm. So Wellington is a big city, but I'm imagining yeah. it's nothing like... New York. New York City. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's a cultural mecca now. It's an amazing place, Wellington? actually. Yeah. yeah. I was looking at that going, that's a cool... It, it, it was always a cool city. I don't know. I mean, I arrived in New York and I was just overwhelmed with the cultural differences and the mythology of what I thought New York was versus what it wasn't. Because actually when I was there, there was an um, economic depression. So I remember a whole <laughs> – it's like me and a whole bunch of other temporary workers were literally going around like a cloud of flies from agency to agency looking for work, and there was none. Wow. Um, and I remember I, one day I was working for five bucks an hour in a record factory in Brooklyn, <laughs> right? And the next day I was working for Polygram Records – in their super big building um, for a lot more money, um, working for a gospel label. And I didn't know what the fuck I was doing because I was working as administrative assistant and I hated doing admin for music. Hated. I felt like it was just, it was an anathema. Mm. And it made me realize how much I really needed to focus on flute playing and all the rest of it. And I really wanted to go to graduate school too. So I was. Was that the impetus for going to New York? Was to study? Yeah, but I, I didn't know how it all. I mean, there were some fantastic teachers there and I had some lessons, but I didn't understand the American schooling system and how much money you needed because I was used to the New Zealand <laughs> system where I was literally paid to go to do undergraduate work. Sure. Right? We have a bursary system which you weren't earned through academia. And then, you know, I. So. I didn't. It's, it's such a big business corporation. This yeah. whole education thing. Universities. And no one was giving yeah. me advice. I mean, I just wasn't getting. Talk about being isolated. I just yeah. wasn't getting advice or help much, except comments that were sort of helpful, but not. And I felt very lost. And so I had I had this huge vision when I left New Zealand, and then when I arrived in New York, I was like, "This is what I'm envisioning. It doesn't belong." here or in this era or something. So I ended ended up moving gradually more west. I went to Columbus, Ohio, right. and then I moved to Seattle. Um, and you studied, but that's where you, wasn't New York where you met Keith? No, was, that was later. That was later. So when I was in Portland and I um, uh, 
you know, had just married my husband here and uh, someone, it was a friend, uh, said, you know, you should go study with Keith. Because I, I was doing my graduate program at Portland State because that was the only place oh, I, could okay. get, I could only do it there because, you know, I, I had two children, right, two right. stepchildren. So I wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. So I had to stay in Portland. So I was kind of stuck. So she said, go study with Keith. Um, and so I would go and have uh, lessons like, you know, every three months or so for a week, like a lesson a day. Mm-hmm. And he's such an incredible teacher that I would literally, he would say one thing, it would just completely <laughs> change my playing. So like I changed my embouchure in like, you know, about three days. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I just, and he was so clear in his teaching and it was like being a young uh, student again where the world was just opening up. I just felt like I would walk into his studio and like suddenly the door was open, like the, the door to flute playing, like it was a very natural way of playing mm-hmm. because he's such a physically uh, smart, sensitive, uh, you know, teacher. He mm-hmm. understands the physiology and there's an intuition that goes with it as well as the physiological reality, right? And right. his willingness to experiment, um, just he's got a super fast intuition about stuff and that was so much the way I am and the way I had learned very young hmm. and then but when I first started taking flute lessons in New Zealand this was like when I was 11 years old right um the state of flute playing and flute teaching was very very old-fashioned and very tense so the old-fashioned way of teaching flute especially in Britain at that time but also American you know in the old days mm-hmm. was like literally you'd have you know, books on your stomach to for your for your diaphragm <laughs> for exercises. Your all those kind of terrible things that, you know, would make more tension. Right. And people kind of uh, just overwork uh, and produce a kind of rigidity in the playing. I mean, actually ruined a lot of players. Mm. I mean, I, I remember one one really great flute player I met when I was at university in New Zealand who was crying in mm. the in the cafeteria one day, and she said. I've been taught so badly I can I I'm going to give up. And she was super, super talented. Wow. But that's how that's what we had, right? We just had what we had. Right. It just wasn't the the stuff, you know. So, so it was a very t- old way of it teaching. It was the old fashioned way, very tight, very tight embouchure, mm-hmm. tight body, well, no tension to body. Right. Apparently, <laughs> you're just a pair of arms and a head. Right. <laughs> there were and and breathing was achieved by calisthenics, you know, by right. by. I mean, things that were just anatomically cuckoo, basically. <laughs> and, I mean, it's not just flute playing that went through this. I mean, you know, uh, vocal students have mm-hmm. been sort of criminally kind of abused in this way too. Um, so, you know, I what, what has been fantastic about the United States is the level of flute teaching here and flute playing is phenomenal. Right. And the way people have, have the ways people have um, experimented with how to think about how to do it, how to physically produce the sound. I mean, literally, I was taught when I was 11, and I was a really bright student and really, uh, you know, I think gifted because I was, I mean, I started playing quants duets, like, really fast and stuff. But I didn't know how to do a lot of basic things because I was just told to visualize them. You want to play high E? Well, think if you about play, just, just visualize it. I'm like, okay, I'm trying really hard now. I'm visualizing. Okay, that was a high E. Oh, okay, now it doesn't work. <laughs> and it was this sort of culture of vagueness. Mm. Um, and it was just, wow. you know, I, I couldn't 
couldn't quite, and it, you know, to no, get you a stuck hen, through it. Yeah, I stuck through it because I because the times that I could get what I wanted technically were amazing, but right. then I'm like, well, what did I do? So it wasn't until I came to the states that I got, you know, started getting lessons, particularly from Keith. But my, actually, my, really, Keith was the one who just said, just do this, and, and I went, oh my god, <laughs> I feel so relaxed. This is such a sensual experience. Right playing i feel like i have so much air and so much of everything else yeah. and so then it was not just he was teaching me but i was teaching myself mm. because i would took his approach and then started to develop my own ideas um and that's what i do now you know right. so i mean we're always teaching ourselves and then teaching others right was he just teaching you the flute or would we do, yeah. would you guys also talk about like practicing in general or was it really just specific Not dealing with really. the flute? really. It was specifically flute and that's really where he was really great for me. I mean, it was so funny because I asked him about nerves one time and, I, and he said, well, uh, people, you know, you say you just... And he used a thing that I know Alexander teachers say, which is like, okay, so imagine, you know, you're, 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 so you're nervous, give it a number, <laughs> and then imagine you're more nervous... Like if you say your nervousness now is at five, okay, imagine you're at 10 and then somehow you'll relax, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him like he was batshit crazy and I'm like, you don't understand. I can imagine a hundred, a thousand, a million, because I have imagination right. for years. That has never worked for me. And, you know, wow. um, what I discovered worked for me actually was being purely physically based. So it was actually just breathing and time to the music. Do you get nervous now? I it all varies. <laughs> it depends. I I would just say, I mean, God, what is nervous really? You know, <laughs> excitement, I guess. Yeah, to well, a certain degree. The, I, mean, I think I, yeah. I I think there I think fears can come and go, but it's sort of like generally not. Yeah, but I, I had someone ask me that the other day. Yeah. They were like. I just don't experience nervous. The only time recently mm. I experienced nervousness was because the conductor running our rehearsal was so horrible that it just oh made me. It gave me. It made me nervous. But right. Um, well, horrible people will will make yeah, us. But, time. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I don't really. Yeah. I don't know. After forty yeah. some years of. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I can. You know, I feel I'll feel certain kinds of tensions at different times because yeah. I'm worried about something or I'm just distracted or unhappy or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when you, when you get your joy back, you know, I yeah. think then, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, for example, I recently, when I was in Paris, I did a recording um, with a violist mm -hmm. and I just felt so calm. But then I was playing in this room that was like, you know, it literally had, incredible French sculptures and paintings in it. Right. And, you know, Georges Sand and Frédéric Chopin had been in that room. They'd been painted in that room. And it, was just, it just happened. It was like yeah. this thing of, like, being surrounded by culture and I just felt really in the right place at the right time and, and everything just went amazingly. That's awesome. Um, there was just no doubt yeah. about that. And I just was... Deeply, deeply focused and relaxed. Um, I don't even like the word reacts because that's calm, sort of... Or... Well, calm even because you're not, <laughs> you know. 
but um, right. just you're kind of right in the pocket maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the way to describe it. But I think – so I think also that it's um, a mistake to – pathologize, you know, things like nervousness or sure. fear or sadness or whatever these things right. because they're actually really useful. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right? And our fears are really freaking useful for us. True. I used to, I mean, I used to have a horrible stage fright. Mm-hmm. But it was weird because it came when I, going through uh, middle school and high school, I had no, I, I was very successful actually as a vocalist. It wasn't, such a good saxophonist at the time, but something happened in my senior year that I just started to have panic attacks mm-hmm. up on stage. And then it, um, I actually learned to meditate and do a bunch of other breathing things that really helped me. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of on the debilitating end. But now, yeah, I walk, you know, like I agree with you welcoming those. Well, they're emotions. really instructive because they're yeah. telling you about, about your history. Right. And the scars you carry. I mean, you know, if you've had an abusive past, which many of us have, um, it's all going to come back, especially if you play an instrument that <laughs> you are breathing, right? right? And you're controlling your breathing. And, of course, the breath is connected to memory. And, you know, we have our brains saying, oh, my God, you're going to die if you don't take some air, <laughs> right? So everything's a triggering thing. I mean, I mean when you teach yeah. people about breathing and, and change their breathing, a lot of emotional responses come up. True. Um, and I think having respect for the emotions that come up and using them, you know, and saying, I mean, yeah, we, we need to have respect for our scars and also for um, all the stories that we carry. Um, and I don't even really, it's going to sound silly, but I don't even really believe in healing as such because I don't like the way the word healing has been used almost like a sort of a cover, a smoothing over, right? Right. Um, because... Actually, I think it's really vital that we have memory of tragedy and memory of stuff and that we keep our anger and our sadness as well as our joy. We keep sure. keep our aliveness um, and we don't try to sanitize these right. things. And a lot of pedagogy can sometimes, when it's dealing with people's fears, can be a sort of a sanitizing. Right. And I'd rather um, utilize all of all of me, right? But, you know... If you've had a lot of abusive people in your life, which I certainly have, you have to... What I have found useful personally is to push back. So it's kind of like you standing up to the bully and you get in, in their space and you move very quietly forward right inside their energy circle <laughs> and you say, you do not fuck with me. Right. You do not want to go there. Knock it off. Right. Right? Yeah, so and, true. And, and, but stepping forward into it. Right, getting closer pushing, to it rather right, than Right, exactly, and just not backing off. Right. And having that much power, you know, um, it's, it's really vital, especially yeah. as, as a woman. Right. I mean, the level of, that, that we are told constantly, all my life I've been told that, you know, um, to smile or to be this way or to, right. to not be too bright. I actually, I remember when I came to the States... <laughs> Oh, you know, gosh. oh yeah, no, I literally had to change my vocabulary and I actually dumbed down a lot of things I said so that I would be understood because that way I wouldn't be threatening to men, those kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Right now I don't give a shit, right. you know, um, and, but pe- there's a kind of requirement as a woman that you cock your head on one side and you talk in a right. kind of like a chipmunk voice <laughs> and, you know, you sort of, 
say things like, well, I don't know and I'm right. sorry. And from recorder to flute I mean you were so young that Mm -hmm. that probably was a logical move actually it was an instrument or it it wasn't really logic it was sort of um (laughs) actually not really a choice because uh you see now my grandfather um had prejudices against the flute I see so so he said you should learn the oboe so I went across across the river to meet the one oboe teacher in town and I tried for about half an hour to blow and to read no such luck couldn't couldn't manage it just wasn't gonna yeah. happen and um then I said well, what about the cello well the cello had been um lent to a family friend long term so that was out of the question too mm. so then I said well I think I really want to play the flute and I remember sort of expressions like oh do you really want to play the flute and, okay <laughs> but um it was a natural fit, but then I had a teacher who was very tense. Right. So I had all this natural ability. I mean, when I see pictures of myself when I was playing, when I was like, you know, first starting off, um, I had this lovely, you know, body position and natural way of being. And she totally... Totally you know, changed totally, it all. She totally... Yeah, she was sort of right. like, you have to do this and then you do that. And, 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 I, and I would get all this sort of tension in there. But I had this natural ability... Right. right there in the body, which is so interesting that I, f- I got that back. You know, right, you had to reclaim yes, it. Yes, but I had to reclaim that. And a lot of things I think about playing is a kind of reclamation of yourself. I mean, I think if you really work it as a musician, it's like you, you get a lot of superpowers mm-hmm. and your ability to deal with um, me- a lot of energy at one time a lot of different kinds of modalities all at one time. Right. You know, the fact we're using all our senses and, 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 right? right? Um, it's magical. Yes, it is magical. Um, and it's also very painful when you don't succeed the way you want to, <laughs> right? Or or you, right. you're exhausted. I think exhaustion plays a big role in the way sure. a lot of musicians feel too. Yeah. Um, just a psychological and physical exhaustion because really nobody gives a shit about what we do, right, <laughs> except us. Really, I mean, you know, they, we're just not Hopefully that Hopefully the audience valuable. does. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I, think, um, I think if people understood the amount of work we do, I don't think they would even want right. to be a musician. Right. They understood. Because you talk of... about the suffering and... <laughs> oh, the suffering, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the grueling <laughs> part of it. And I, yeah. that's an interesting... I, I totally get what you're saying when yeah. you talk about that. And it's yeah. for me it's this interesting play play again of like balancing out the like there's the it's almost like you have to go through the grueling and the suffering to get to the joy where it's just free. I mean, but I'm trying to change that on my own yeah. approach to preparation to where it's not where the preparation is as joyful as the Yes. Yeah, so that's tricksy, you know. that all that language about grueling and stuff, because there's this whole heroic macho language we have about like training, you know, and right. sort of the marathon, and that's actually pretty toxic probably for yeah. music making because it leads to 
joylessness and injury, right? right? Um, but it's more like, I think of it as more like when you are sort of practicing in a new habit, like this is a passage that's really awful and mm-hmm. you're just figuring out, okay, now I've got a better fingering and this is going to work. Now I've got to work it in. So, you know, I do, I loop it or I do, yeah. um, I think of like circuit training, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not to break my spirit or break my body. It's more like engaging each time you go through the iteration. Oh, I felt that part. Oh, this is what happened. You're observing yourself. Right. And so you're kind of seeing what more else you can observe. And so by, by, by the time it's working, and it's funny, I, I, when I was thinking about I'm thinking about this right now, I almost like have a kind of a kinesthetic um, or visual sense of it. Different colors happen. So mm. I, I have a synesthesia, so I see oh, wow. color when I hear awesome. sound. Kind of awesome. It's a little bit weird too. But but it's like when I'm playing a passage, you know, certain colors will pop out. And then it the color of the passage changes for me. I've never actually mm-hmm. thought about this right now until this conversation. Wow, actually. that's awesome. Yeah, because I'm working on a piece right now um, that's got some tricky spots. And so, you know, I'm... You know, and then sometimes things are so damn elusive, you know, and so you sort of try to slow it down even further. Not necessarily physically play it slower, but slow it's it's about your brain being able to take in what you're doing. Right. You know. Um and when you're playing so fucking fast, it's like, oh God, you how do we take it do in. this, right? So then you create these point these resting points within right. the phrase. Yeah. So you can find it. Um but yeah, the, the learning of something, it's like you're gaining a sensory appreciation of what it is. Right. And it becomes a, a different part of the la- It becomes a new landscape. Right. Right. Like you almost, the, the joyful part for me is like, I've worked and worked and worked on a particular passage and it's, it's good. And then I can't wait to play it because I want to feel the sensation of it. Mm. That's what I look forward to is when I, the pleasure <laughs> of playing something with a sensation because right. I'm so physically oriented my playing. How did that evolve for you? Like, I imagine that's not always the way you've practiced. So like, or maybe it is, and that's great. (laughs) Like, I'm wondering how that, I mean, my practice, I'm assuming your practice has evolved since you were in university to now, not only because your, your mastery has probably increased, but also, you know, I'm sure your approach is. I'm a lot more patient than I used to be. I was, I was, um, you know, I was so keyed into what other people thought of what I was doing mm. that I would, and I was so sensitive to who they were that if they were critical of me, I would internalize that. So that was, you know, young me, you know, yeah. years and years and years ago. And then I realized that that was going to destroy everything that I wanted to do. So I consciously evolved a new way to do that. But that meant I had to really engage with my whole feeling self, you know, and just sure. taking back my own power. So that's a huge part of it, actually. Right. Um, and that and kind huge. of, yeah, and, and sort of, um, yeah. And so now it's sort of like, um, like there are days that, especially when I'm starting a new piece, where I feel sort of like um, slow, like my brain feels kind of like not right. tracking. <laughs> And where I would have worried about that years ago, 
Like, okay, I have to, I have to get ready. Into right. I actually like go with the state that I'm in mm. and I go with it. So I play something at a really glacial pace because I, then I want, because it helps me then pay attention and, and hook in. And what I want to do is be able to pay attention. And there's, there's so many ways that you can entice yourself to pay attention. Like I used to, for example, in the old days when I actually had a television, um, I would put on a really crappy show, like a talk show or something. <laughs> and I went to, cause I would like, I must be so resistant. Like, oh, I just don't feel like doing technical work right now. Right. I'm just going to rather <laughs> so poke my own eye out than do this. Right. So then I would put on, you know, like a, a some dumb talk show and have my flute in my hands and then I would just start playing and watching the talk show. Right. And after about five <laughs> used to minutes, do the same thing. Yeah. No, it's great. It's a really fantastic technique. I highly recommend it. <laughs> it's really good. It's and and after about five minutes, I realized I was more interested in my flute playing than I was in the stupid show <laughs> that I had actually engaged because I had given myself permission to be half-hearted and half-assed about it. Right. And to play it and to play not very well. Interesting. And at some point, something would start to happen well. I thought, oh, that actually doesn't sound too bad. Let me just, okay, now, well, that's really interesting. And then I would get more curious about that. And then I could switch off the stupid TV and then <laughs> go to work. But I think often when, we, when we're struggling with that, we've lost, lost, we've lost confidence in mm. um, uh, just our own process. Like there's some part of us that has lost confidence in our own magic. Sure. We just think, well, even if I try really hard, it's still not going to be magic. You know, it's one of those like <laughs> stupid things you say to yourself. Right. Um, and I think this the struggle to keep the magic is is just ongoing because in a world that we're in a live in a world that literally assaults people for their magic, right? For beauty, for truth, for vulnerability, for all the things that are good. We're, that's that's under a constant assault. Right. So. As human beings, we're going to pick that up. And it's so interesting that you, at, at one point, told your brother, okay, I'm not playing anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's, I think that we all reach a point in adolescence where we make that. It's almost, I guess it's societal or cultural, or maybe it's just the way it is where we decide, I don't want to be a child anymore. And I want to be an adult, whatever that means. And then we get to be an adult and then we're, at least for myself, it's like, oh, I want to get that childlike right. back. Like, right. I want to get back in touch with that right. joy, that that right. curiosity. Well, I mean, adolescence is is being is a, is a place of shame for so many people, and yeah. it shouldn't be. There's right. no need for it to be this way. But we've made it hell for young people to gain power. I mean, I think when young people start to get stroppy. You know, actually, this is a good thing because they're actually learning to handle their power, and everybody should be helping them learn how to mag- you know manage that power that they have, rather than squash their anger and squash their feelings. Right. Like, go, oh, this is really good that you feel this antsy. Let's do something <laughs> with this because this is part of your superpower right. as an adult. So, so you know, suffocating children, it or squashing right, it. Right, and so yeah. many, and and if we can, you know, so you can imagine, like I was aware probably i felt very self-conscious right like i'm like i'm trying to trying to negotiate this new sort of preteen thing but i I have no confidence in myself and i feel like a complete klutz um and i don't know how to do anything right right. and so i don't want to be associated with this thing that's like child play because that would make me even dumber right um 
And of course, then you go, you go to and do a degree, and everyone's saying, "Brian, you know, get to play," and like, <laughs> you know. But now, now you've got permission to do it. I mean, it's, right. it's all it's all kind of lopsided and ridiculous. So um was she also were, seemed like she huge, might have been a big huge, influence also huge. huge uh so she was kind of like a big sister for me she was 5 years older and we would play recorder chamber music together <laughs> so i'd be like six or something and you know and then and i do it with my mother as well so we played trios cuz i was so your a mother really good reader played she played recorder with recorder, me recorder yeah. awesome yeah so we'd do chamber music together read through all the stuff and um i love sight reading so much so um but she was a she she was the one that um, introduced me to the flute really, and so we started playing Quance duets really quickly. Actually. Wow! Yeah, because I was like right into it, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, and she was, but she was such a she is still alive. Mm. She's a such a kind person and a fair-minded person. She really taught me a lot about ethically thinking things through. Sort of, you would have your feelings and thoughts, but you would also apply logic as well mm. and you but it would be done in a very loving way and um i mean you know sort of to the nth degree she would sort of like weigh things you know <laughs> which it was sort of like could drive you crazy but also wonderful um mm. but i think it's a wonderful quality she was just very affirming at a time that i didn't get a lot of affirmation that's awesome yeah and i god i mean i was lucky to have have that i mean a lot of people don't have that yeah they have indifference, which is almost worse than right. abuse, right? right? Because you don't even know that you exist. Right. It's you're invisible. Right. Essentially. Right. And you're just sort of fitting into something, whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's a great picture. I don't remember where I saw it, but there's a picture of you and your aunt. Yes, playing, playing. duos in the garden, <laughs> in my grandparents' garden. Yeah. No, we we love to do that. So what's coming up for you? You're taking off soon. Yes. For, you're going <laughs> I to, am. Are you going, where are you going to, you're not going to France, are you? No, not yet. I'm going to New York. Going to New York, And that's I'm going right. to play a, a concert. Um, I'm on a concert with um, a bunch of other people, uh, and they're playing a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just doing one piece. But it's a um, premiere of a co-commission, part of the um, uh, Flute New Music Consortium, and it's by Valerie Coleman, who's mm-hmm. a very prominent um, African-American composer written a ton of she's a flutist herself great awesome. flutist and she's written a lot of stuff so she's written this piece for flute and piano so um kathleen superbe and i are working together for the first time and premiering this piece Exciting. Um, it's called amazonia and it's about the amazon and all the stuff that's going on yeah and um, then are you releasing a 
Are you releasing a recording this year? Or? I I don't know if it'll be this year, but I've I'm definitely that's coming down the pike. I mean, I just it's been ridiculously long time <laughs> since I did a solo recording. Yeah, and no, I just it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, I've I've rec- just um, uh, finished two tracks like fully edited and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, and I have more recording to do, some more editing to do, but that's. I would say probably next year it'll be a solo album ready. Mm-hmm. Plus I want to, now that I've done the experimental stuff with the animation that I did, I now want to make like a fully fledged animation, which hopefully we know more than like five minutes long or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, I wanted to, to make it, you know, to make the animation and compose and record for it. And then hopefully all going well, if it's good, then I will enter it into film festivals. That's what I want to do with it. Awesome. Um, so, yeah. Um, and there's other stuff coming up this year too. I mean, a ton of other stuff. But like, oh, God, uh, going to New Zealand to do recording, go to France, probably do some recording in a concert. Um, mm-hmm. Working also with two other people who I met at the Atlantic Centre. Um, we wanted to make an installation together. Oh, so awesome. Yeah, so we're hopefully we'll meet in Florida and cook up something and then put a proposal together and send that on its way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just been a, it's been a really uh, good year so far. I mean, I know it's not very long. <laughs> seven days. <laughs> just seven days. But those seven days have been quite potent. Awesome. No, it's been, it's been interesting so far this decade. I have felt that the energy is moving around me. Like people coming up and saying the things that I had long wished they had said to mm. me. <laughs> like they want more that's or awesome. whatever. Right. Like let's get together and do this or that's a great idea. Let's get together and do that. Um, I'm sensing uh, people, people's willingness. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's because things are literally on fire and we don't have much time. And, right. know, and we need to actually, uh, you know, be collaborating and, and making things beautiful together and meaningful and sort of increase our own intelligence about what we're doing because, you know, we don't have time. Right. It's not on our side. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is that where you're finding inspiration from? From what the, the, from the terror that's going no, on right now? No, just this, <laughs> the feeding of like this, um, what you were just speaking to, like people really coming to you and saying more more that well that's certainly it, it's important to me because um it, i like being encouraged and i like to encourage other people mm-hmm. um but yeah i'm also realizing you know we i think probably many most of us all of us sabotage ourselves like we sort of <laughs> sit around and go you know i can't do this or i won't do right. it, whatever that's a bad and, idea or this is yeah. you know and it's a it's it's a it's a ridiculous response if you have any kind of privilege of time and resources to make, you know, to be sitting on your thumbs. Right. So at the very least, I would feel phenomenally guilty if I wasn't making the most of the time that I have to do this, to do my, try to do my best work, try to be there for other people and to help them do their best work. Um, and, and really, I just want to sort of, I'm a futurist, I think. Um, and I want people to feel that no matter what happens as the Titanic sinks, 
that we are holding hands, that we, are, we have imagined futures together, that we have invested in them, that we have better and better ideas about what those could be, and that we have, um, we have the imagination for it um, so that we have each other. Right. That is really, really important. The outcome, there's not a lot that we can control. We do what we can. But the reality is, it's you know, it is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, but to really be amazing together, um, and really listen to what people are saying when things aren't amazing, uh, I think is just uh, so key. Um, you know, I. It's funny, you know, I. I think about like when um, when I was a little kid. And I was imagining what being an adult was. So, of course, you know, it's just going to be one long party, right? Right. You know, wasn't me worrying about anything. No self-doubt. for dinner. Be, exactly. It would be, just be cool. But my my vision was, so I'd be like in my princess dress or something, right? This is mm-hmm. my imagination. I'm right. And sitting in a window, kind of like Paris, right, with a windy street. Yeah. And I'd be yelling out things to my friends in their windows and then we say, well, let's go do blah, 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 blah. And so we would just go do stuff together. And then we'd meet some other people and then we'd go play on the horses and then we'd go paint some stuff and then maybe we'd have a party, you know, or eat some <laughs> cool food. But that dream has never really left me because what that's about is the potency of flow, mm. right? That, that there is perceptible electrical current within a place, a group of people. Yeah. You're not, I, I sort of hate this term like creating community because you really can't do it <laughs> right. until you have that electrical flow. Right. Until people, everyone is like game to play. Right. Right. And <laughs> all, so the, true. all the little workshops and jargon, all this bullshit you can do. But until the electricity is in the air and people are like, their life is on the line, they've got skin in the game, it's not going to happen. No. But when that flow is happening, you know, it's like, I mean, I remember actually when I was, I was so in love in many ways with my um, academic life when I was studying in New Zealand, mm-hmm. you know, doing my undergrad degree. And I remember studying, I was studying contemporary music, uh, histori- you know, the history of contemporary music. I was in the library and I swear literally books would be falling out of bookshelves <laughs> that I needed to read. <laughs> Seminal books that have changed my life. Wow. Right. That's yeah. how I felt. Like I just felt, or I literally go down the road and there would be the one person I needed to meet who would say the thing that I needed to hear to go to the next thing. And I could track yeah. it. You can feel it yep. when there's that, that electric flow. flow. That is missing from so many people's lives and in so many so-called communities because that aliveness uh, is not cultivated. People are terrified of feeling that much energy. Right, because it's, it's everything scary is for them. right. Yeah. It's it's well, it's and it's sort of the culture is buy more and numb out. You know, um, you you want to feel calm. You know, <laughs> calm down, calm. lady. Calm down. <laughs> Just smile more, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, and but you know that excitement. Um, if we can allow all that stuff to bubble up, right, we'll have something real. Yeah, tapping into that is so key. An aliveness. Yeah. It's not hard. No. Really. Just really. I mean, take a book and hit yourself on the head. <laughs> I guarantee you'll feel something. You'll feel alive. <laughs> or play some music. Yeah. Exactly. Or go to a concert. Or... Right. Exactly. Cool. So do you have, 
do you have a vision or at all at intention for the next for this decade for yourself or it's more just that flow like you're it seems like you're in the flow of it yeah i think uh it's really just um really just uh actually trusting my instincts 110 percent, no matter what people tell me right which sounds kind of almost like well what if what if you're wrong which i could <laughs> be wrong definitely um but trusting your instincts, if you're really doing it right, means that you're really listening for new information, which I always am. Right. Always asking questions, always asking. But but when you when when you know when it's a pig, it's a pig. Don't put <laughs> lipstick on it, right? It is what it is. Right. And really calling it what it is, and being I think really just being blunt about things, not for the point, not to be cruel, right? But to say this is really what I see. What do you see? Being um, and honest this is, thing and right. kind at the same time, yeah. Right. Um, because I've I've held myself back so many times just to sort of fit in with yeah. whatever's going on. And um, <laughs> that, that is death, actually, to the creative yeah. spirit. I mean, if I could give advice to anybody, including my former selves. Right. <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Like, if you, if you had 25-year-old Tessa sitting in the room, what... Oh what my would, God! What would you tell her? I would say, "Oh, you poor thing! You have no idea." <laughs> I see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, God, I would say, trust yourself completely. And if you get a weird feeling about someone or you don't like something, trust it. Yeah. And, you know, but also know that it's a lonely process because if you step out in front, you're the one who gets your head chopped off, and you're alone in it yeah. for a while. Yeah. But it will be just for a while. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I th- you know, it's a young woman too. Jesus, I mean, it's hard for young women. And a lot of women start to give up. Yeah. And they go cuckoo because they... It's because too much. It's too much. Yeah. Right. And too isolating. When We don't like being so isolated. We want to feel like we can step out in front with a posse of people. Right. Imagine that, right? <laughs> You've got, you've got a posse of people stepping out in front. That is solidarity. That is collective action right there. Yeah. Um, awesome. That's, that's, that's the next decade. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Tessa. Well, thank you. For, this is fun. Yeah. You're a good interviewer. <laughs> you should do this more often. You should, have, you should do more podcasts. That's the, that's the plan <laughs> is, to, uh, is to do more of these and maybe have other podcasts. Who knows? I'm. This is my... You know, me trusting my instinct and Good. following and this, and, and wherever it goes, it will go. And yeah, uh, I, I'm honored that you took the time. And then, oh, and my pleasure. Um, I'm honored that you asked. Actually, um, yeah. Here's okay. to 2020. Absolutely. Bring it on. <laughs> Bring it on. We're ready. <laughs> okay. Hey there, Steve again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Playful Musician. I'm really delighted you could be here. Would you like to get updates and behind-the-scenes information about The Playful Musician? Well, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter with all the good stuff. It's quick, easy to subscribe. If you like the show, well, I think you're going to like the newsletter as well. You'll also find show notes and links to everything and everyone talked about on the show at the website as well. You can even get a preview of upcoming episodes. Once again, check it out at theplayfulmusician.com.
Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and consider leaving a five-star rating. I'd also love it if you could leave a review. It really helps to grow the show and get the wide audience it deserves. Thanks so much. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Take care.